Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. To use and um, uh, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. This is our first book in the uh, in the New Testament. The writings about the life and teachings of Jesus. The Gospel of Matthew is a story of Jesus's life. I'll invite you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew and go to chapter twenty-four. And then I'm going to ask you to do one other thing, which is to not judge me just yet on the text that you see in front of you in Matthew twenty-four. Uh, whenever I am asked to guest preach somewhere, the absolute worst part of it to me uh, is deciding what it is that I'm going to speak about. Uh, some places when they ask you to speak, say, hey, we want you to speak about this text or about this topic. Um, but most of the time they will say, I don't know, you choose. You pick a text that you like. You pick a, uh, a topic that you want to talk about. And I absolutely hate that. Uh, and uh, they uh, would know not to ask me this question if they spent any amount of time uh, with me and my wife while we're driving around trying to decide where we want to eat, uh, because I have all these options out in front of me and I cannot decide. So when I am asked to preach somewhere and I am left for the choice, what I like to do is draw my text from what is called the lectionary. Now the lectionary is kind of a big fancy word, but basically all that the lectionary is, is a Bible reading plan. And it's a Bible reading plan that Christians have used for hundreds, if not thousands of years uh, to work their way through the scriptures uh, over the course of the year or over a couple of years. And when I saw that this was the Sunday I was going to be preaching, I uh, turned uh, to the page in my lectionary and I thought, oh no. Uh, usually there's some nice, enjoyable parable of Jesus, some great, exciting story from the New Testament or the Old Testament. But when I looked, I saw that the text for the lectionary today was a text basically about Armageddon. Uh, and if there's one thing I did not want to do was come into my home church for a one-off guest sermon and talk about Armageddon. And so I hemmed and hawed, but uh, finally decided, no, I'm going to listen to this text. I'm going to listen to this text. I'm going to sit with it a while and see what it might have to teach me and what it might have to teach us. So I ask that you would follow along with me in this text today, listening to it and trying to discern God's voice through this part of Holy Scripture. And with that, I'll ask that you begin by praying with me. Oh God, we thank you for this day, for this opportunity to join with one another uh, in prayer, in worship, and in listening to your word. I pray that you would give us an open mind, an open heart, open ears to hear what it is you want to teach us and what it is that you want us to do with our lives. And it's in Christ's name I pray, amen. For the earliest Christians, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus was an apocalypse. Today, when we hear the word apocalypse, uh, our minds tend to jump 
to catastrophes, to disasters, or to terrible things that befall the human race. We think of global cataclysms, nuclear wars, climate change, pandemics, alien invasions, divine wrath pouring down from the heavens, anything terrible you can think of, that is what we associate with apocalypse. And one of the most uh, popular and lucrative categories of popular media today is apocalyptic stories that present humanity uh, struggling to survive in the wake of global disasters. Books like The Stand or The Road, movies like Cloverfield and Mad Max, TV shows like The Walking Dead and Station Eleven show that we are obsessed as a culture with the idea of apocalypse as disaster. But when early Christians described Jesus as apocalyptic, they meant it in the original sense of the word. For those ancient believers who were Greek speakers, the word apocalypse, which comes from the Greek, meant something less disastrous, but in some ways far more significant than it does for us today. At its most basic, apocalypse simply means a revelation or an unveiling or a disclosure of the truth. An apocalypse was an event that revealed something true about reality, a moment that uncovered what had previously been hidden or obscured and could now be fully seen and fully understood. For early Christians, an apocalypse could be very bad, but it could also be overwhelmingly good. And so early Christians described Jesus as an apocalypse because he revealed definitively and clearly the saving activity of God in the world. He revealed God's redemptive presence among us, and he, demonstrate, and he demonstrated that God had not and would not abandon the creation that he had made, sustained, and loved from the very beginning. If the groans of fallen creation for healing and relief had been a cosmic question posed to the creator, then Christ's arrival was the divine answer, a soothing embrace of the world's deepest wounds and a clarifying exposure of the wicked reign of sin and death. Jesus's teachings revealed the wisdom of God with him at the creation expressed in the simple language of farmers, laborers, workers, and mothers. Jesus's death and burial revealed God's commitment to drawing all humanity to himself, no matter what the cost. And Jesus's resurrection revealed God's complete control over all the forces that seemed aligned against him and against the people he loved. Jesus was an apocalypse in every sense of the word. He was a revelation. But the arrival of Jesus was also apocalyptic because it pointed to an even greater revelation, an even greater unveiling, an even greater apocalypse that was to come. And I think it can be easy for us sometimes to lose sight of just how small Jesus's life was. When Christians proclaim that Jesus was God become human, 
We proclaim that God came to us in a highly particular way. He came to the world as a devout Jewish carpenter in a backwater town, in a backwater region, whose life was mysterious, short, and snuffed out in a bit, in a fit of brutality. But for early Christians, those who encountered Jesus and later wrote what we know today as the New Testament, it was precisely the modesty and the shortness and the mystery of Jesus's life that pointed to something even more significant. Jesus's often confusing teachings suggested that he understood something about the way the world worked far beyond the capacities of mere mortals and which could only be fully understood when the present age had passed. Jesus's power to perform miracles, heal the sick, give sight to the blind, suggested that uh, he was merely a taste of a world in which all such horrors would be completely forgotten. And Jesus's ability to unbind the ties of death, both for others and most significantly for himself, suggested that he was the forerunner of a new creation, a world in which death held no sway and sin was blotted from existence. In other words, Jesus pointed to another future, to another apocalypse, to another unveiling in which the work of God, begun by Jesus in this particular time and this particular place, in this particular way, would be completed once and for all. The Jesus apocalypse, in other words, pointed to the final apocalypse. And those who lived after Christ were therefore caught in a middle state, an in-between between the work of God already set in final unstoppable motion, but not yet fully complete. And this brings us finally then to our text for today. Matthew 24, starting in verse 36 and following, drops us right down into the middle of one of Jesus's lengthy teaching sessions. We know from Matthew and the other gospel writers that Jesus often spent large amounts of time teaching and preaching to those who followed him around. At times, his teachings were a rebuke of the religious opponents who had come to antagonize him. At other times, his, teacher, his teachings were moral instructions for living a good life and for entering what he called the kingdom of heaven. But Matthew 24 and its surrounding chapters are unique because they capture another part of Jesus's teaching, one that tends to get a little less attention, no doubt because it's just so weird. It's his teachings about the end times, or we might say the final apocalypse. Follow along with me now in Matthew 24, starting in verse 36. Jesus says, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the son of man. 
For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. While so much of what Jesus says and does throughout the Gospels only hints at the end times, here we get a much more explicit teaching. Someday, at some time, in some year after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Son of Man, Jesus will return to finish what he started once and for all. Here in the midst of his own apocalyptic life, Jesus is telling his followers explicitly that another final apocalypse, another final revelation, another final unveiling will occur. And what's so striking to me about this passage is how little Christ actually says about the nature of this ultimate final eternal apocalypse. It can be tempting to get caught up in the details of passages like this, assuming that they're telling us something that's literally true about what the final apocalypse will be like. And some people have expanded from this passage to suggest that the final coming of Christ will literally involve people disappearing from the middle of working in fields from grinding at mills or in a more modern world, maybe flying airplanes and teaching classes, all while bewildered non-believers look on in fear. Maybe that's the case. I don't know for sure, and I'm not sure anyone does except the Lord himself. But what I do know is that Jesus often speaks in riddles in parables, in stories, teachings whose external trappings, external forms are primarily to entertain and catch you into the story, but whose deeper, more subtle meanings reveal something ultimately true. And when I read this passage, here's what I think is the heart of Jesus's teaching about the end. It goes something like this. Christ's life has revealed the ongoing saving work of God. That work of God is by design not yet complete. A time will come when Jesus, the Son of Man, will return to complete the work of God that is only now beginning. So be ready. Be prepared. Watch out. Hope but you have no idea when that final time will arrive. I have to admit to you, at the risk of maybe sounding a little sacrilegious, 
that I find this teaching very frustrating sometimes. It's been nearly 2,000 years since Christ's death and resurrection. Generations upon generations of Christians have lived and worked and prayed and worshiped and died. And to the best of my knowledge, God has revealed nothing more about what this final apocalypse, this final revelation of Christ will be like. That curious, never satisfied, always searching, often doubting part of me wants to cry out. It wants to know more. It wants clarity. It wants certainty. Because as a Christian today, I believe along with the earliest Christians that we are living in a post-apocalyptic world, a world in which God has been definitively revealed in Jesus of Nazareth and in which God is at work setting things in order and preparing his creation for this final moment of blessed, overwhelming, clarifying revelation. But here I am this morning, here we are this morning, waiting, watching, and longing for answers. And I'll also admit to you that this teaching creates a little anxiety in me sometimes. The first apocalypse of Christ was a wonderful thing, but it was costly. It cost Jesus his own life. It involved suffering on the cross, it involved disciples enduring persecution, suffering, and death. And it involved overturning dearly held religious beliefs and practices. And so I wonder, am I ready for this final revelation? Am I ready for this apocalypse? Am I ready for this final unveiling of the reign and will of God and all that might mean for my life? What should I do? What should we do? And maybe what can we do? Did Jesus get, just give us this weird, mysterious, and frankly, a little frightening teaching so that we would live in fear and terror until the end of times? I don't suspect that I'm alone in having some anxieties about the apocalypse. I've known many faithful Christians with beautiful, vibrant commitments to following the way of Jesus that are and were racked by fear about the end. They fear that they've not done enough to be faithful. They fear that when the trumpet sounds and Christ reappears, they will be found wanting. And they fear that this final apocalypse will be a violent, bloody, terrifying affair. And I usually see uh, people responding to these anxieties in two ways. There are some that want to control the end and so become obsessed with it. They want to know exactly what to expect. They want to make sure all their ducks are in a row and they want to make sure that they've done enough to earn God's ultimate favor. And so they spend time trying to read the tea leaves of politics and the culture to identify the precise moment and time that the end will arrive. 
They spend their time trying to collect, quantify, and organize their good deeds into readily presentable lists that will please God and earn their salvation. Or at their most extreme, they stockpile supplies build shelters, store up material goods that they think will see them through the end of these terrible times until God can come in and save them. And then there are others, and this is the category I think I fit in most. There are those of us who feel so much stress thinking about the end times or are just so confused by it that we push it completely out of our minds we try not to think about the fact that Christ will return. We try to just get on with our lives, assuming that the final apocalypse of Jesus will not touch or affect us for quite some time. Or at our most extreme, we simply deny Jesus's teaching altogether, placing it in a bin of dusty old Bible teachings that we would just really rather not deal with. Both attitudes in their own way, I think, are trying to survive the apocalypse. They're trying to deal with this strange, confusing, and just plain weird teaching of Jesus by trying to control their own fate out of pride, proclaiming to God that they are in charge of their own destiny, or by denying their own fate altogether, proclaiming to themselves that they can just go about their happy lives carefree with no concern for the end. But neither attitude, I think, is particularly faithful. And thankfully, Jesus offers us a third way, his own, if you will, survivor's guide to the apocalypse. So continue along with me now in Matthew 24, picking back up in verse 45. Jesus continues, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put himself in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour that he is not aware. He will cut him to pieces, assign him to a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What I want you to see here with this parable is that Jesus pushes back against both types of anxious responses to the final apocalypse that I was just talking about. Those who wish to ignore the fact of Christ's second coming to discount his final beatific revelation, those people Jesus likens to a wicked servant who mistreats his fellow servants, exerts his own will over others, and does whatever he wants out of the false assurance that his master will never return and find his misconduct. But the Lord will return, Jesus says, at precisely the time that such servants least expect, suddenly finding themselves the object of his righteous wrath. But Jesus also reminds those who are too obsessed with the final apocalypse and therefore seek to control and determine their own faith 
that faithfulness in light of the apocalypse is not about getting your own house in order, but getting your master's house in order. Preparing for the apocalypse, in other words, is not about focusing on your own self, your own good deeds, your own house, but rather focusing on the Lord and the things that the Lord cares most about. In other words, Jesus's survivor's guide to the apocalypse boils down to this one key idea. Be faithful to your Lord and the things he cares about fully, wholeheartedly, and without distraction. Devote your time to worship, prayer, communing with God. Give yourself to caring for his people, his church. Offer yourself as a living sacrifice right here, right now, by serving the poor, the outcast, the oppressed, the least among us. Live a faithful Christian life, a life fully aware that Christ might appear at any moment, and then leave the rest up to God. In many ways, the Christian life is a life of waiting for the end of waiting for the moment when Christ will finally call us to himself or when Christ will return to draw all of us into his final revelation. But the way we wait, the means by which we orient ourselves to this end, is by cultivating a life of faithful Christian practice focused on God and others. It is, as Jesus says other words, to love the Lord our God with all our soul and all our mind and all our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. And this is the way that the Apostle Paul, one of Jesus's earliest followers and one of the main writers of the New Testament, described this act of waiting for the end times in his letter to a church of believers in the city of Rome. This is from the book of Romans, chapter 13. Paul writes, And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with, Lord, with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of your flesh. To believe in Jesus, to worship Jesus, and to acknowledge the apocalypse that he brought into the world 2,000 years ago is to proclaim with our lives that there will be another final apocalypse. It's to proclaim that the Son of Man will, uh, will indeed return again, and that just as the people of the first century AD could not have predicted the exact nature <coughs> and timing of the appearance of the Messiah. So also we who await Christ's return cannot and will not know the exact nature and timing of the final revelation. But in light of this fact, to be faithful to Jesus requires that we adopt a posture of humility before God's providence, before God's foreknowledge, before God's will for our lives. 
We cannot treat God's plans for the future, however dimly they have been revealed to us, as irrelevant for our lives. We must watch. We must be ready. But we must do so by being faithful. We watch, we wait, we make ready the coming of our Lord by tending our master's house, by serving our master's people, and by trusting in our master's timely return. This is all that's required of us, but it is a lifetime's worth of work. And so my hope and prayer this morning is that Jesus Christ, our great apocalyptic Lord, would find me, find you, find us, find his church, eagerly waiting, eagerly watching, and faithfully anticipating his return. Amen and amen.